Hi, hello. Uh, this is the 40th demonstration of the system. I counsel caution today, not because of any rude words or particularly offensive content. It is just that uh, today we are featuring the fourth episode of the Brandreth Papers, and it is only fair to our beloved patrons that, uh, th that under such circumstances, we counsel caution. And now we return to the Brandreth Papers, the astonishing autobiographical adventures of Bennett Brandreth, recounted to us by the hero himself from the foyer of the Cavalry and Guards Club. When last we left Mr. Brandreth in episode three, he had cut loose from his friend Robbie Campbell Blankowitz and abandoned the soulless life of a successful contemporary artist for the rounded perspective of a career as a barrister. All seems, if not well, then at least to be returning to an even keel for our hero. That is, until the summer of 2003 sees episode four begin. The parade of the new acquisitions. Everything would change for me in 2003, when I rose early one morning and made my way to Hyde Park to attend a rally I had organized in favor of the war with Iraq. As I marched down the mall towards Buckingham Palace, I caught sight amidst the crowd of a face I recognised. Jane Addison. She strode past Horse Guards Parade with her midnight hair streaming behind her, and held high before her, like the torch of the Statue of Liberty, a placard demanding that the United Nations nut up over Iraq. I was consumed with longing. Always a man of action, I decided to renew my romantic pursuit. Perhaps, listening at home, you clutch the arm of your wing-back chair as I say this. You think me bold, given how our affair had ended and Jane's conspicuous failure to come to my art exhibition. But I could not help myself. I was drawn to her as a moth to a flame or a Daily Mail journalist to a long-range photo of Meghan Markle. And you should know, that by 2003 I had become something of a player in the game of love. Was it the cheekbones? The ability to bench-press my body weight whilst reciting Shakespeare's sonnets from memory? <laughs> I don't know. But that I had a way with the ladies was undeniable. Indeed, I had recently published a slim volume of pro-forma love letters culled from my own romantic experiences and entitled How Goes the Day with My Fair insert name here, which had sold particularly well with men aged 26 to 34 who worked in the IT industry. Seeing Jane stride on down the mall, I paused only to dispose of my own placard, which, though on one side it bore simply a phrase from Book 10 of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, We make war so that we may live in peace, had on the other side a detailed depiction of Frederick the Great's troop dispositions at the Battle of Lurthen and was, in consequence, unwieldy in a dating scenario. I approached Jane. I called on all my powers of seduction. I was eloquent in my desire. My rhetoric drew on Cicero and Churchill, Shakespeare and Sinatra. I painted a picture of myself as an intellectual colossus, an astounding athlete, a generous and giving lover. It was for nothing. Jane was unmoved. You're a liar, Bennett. You would betray me again. Look at you, trying to seduce me like some foolish girl you could dazzle with your words. 
You can't help yourself, Bennett. You are the scorpion, and I am the frog. The scorpion and the frog? The scorpion and the frog? Oh, my friends, to this day, I have no idea what the fuck that means. I watched Jane walk away past a bonfire on which some young conservatives had put effigies of Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden and President Chirac of France. Despite the excited crowd around me, I heard only the beating of my own heart. Lesser men might have been put off by such an encounter, but faint heart ne'er won fair lady, a true saying if unfortunate in also being the motto of the International Federation of Stalkers, Austrian chapter. I decided I would prove to Jane that I had changed. About a year later, I discovered through the Cambridge University alumni website, cantabuberales.com, that Jane was now the head of finance at the British Museum. This is a position of importance in the world. The post comes with a substantial salary, the right to wear a sword on state occasions, and to break wind audibly once a year in the reading room of the British Library. It also gives you the right to attend the Parade of the New Acquisitions, the ritual introduction of a new item to the museum's collection. Knowing that Jane will be there, I arrange an invitation intending to take this chance to show her my new, mature and successful persona. Arriving, I make my way through the audience to a place near Jane. If she is surprised to see me, she hides it well. The parade commences with a striking of the Rosetta Stone on each of its sides with a horsehair flail and concludes in the atrium where the president recites the peroration from the funeral speech of Pericles in Greek before striking a gong and letting out a loud cry. Oh, my friends, would that I could convey to you the magnificence of the British Museum at night, lit solely by candles, their flickering flame seeming to make the statues dance to the beat of the finance department's drums. Now, usually, the parade is presided over by the current keeper of the museum, but on this occasion, the Queen herself is in attendance and will perform that final ululation. Well, given that the Queen is well known to possess a baritone voice of astonishing richness, you can imagine the excitement. But that night, as Her Majesty reached the final words of Thucydides that you will all know so well, For where the greatest prizes for valour are set, there the best citizens are to be found, there comes a terrible keening wail, like a pig being slaughtered or, or David Beckham speaking, and hurtling itself through the throng comes a hideous beast, a twisted mockery of humanity. He crashes forward, flicking aside the museum's employees and royal protection officers as if cigarette butts flicked contemptuously from a rent boy's rough fingers. And Jane and I would have fallen to the beast's initial attack, were it not that as we stood listening to the Queen, Jane and I had begun quietly arguing about the end of our Cambridge affair. Jane had clutched at my sleeve. But now I know. 
The three most important nouns in the universe. Well, not wanting her to cause a disturbance, I drew her aside, and thus out of the path of the beast's initial attack. We turned to see the creature stride towards the queen, draw from under his tattered robes a long, cruel dagger, and drive it at her head. Jane does not hesitate. She flings herself on the murderer's arm, staying the killer blow. Whence comes the strength of this young woman to hold back the arm of the vicious beast? My friends, you should know that since first Jane embarked upon a career in the cutthroat world of finance in our nation's museum, she has suffered the petty jealousies and ill-disguised contempt of her male colleagues, determining, early on, that in the figurative stag battle of the male corporate world, the firm handshake is all she has cultivated a killer grip. At first, she used a tennis ball cut in half, reflexively squeezing it over and over again, before moving on to a squash ball, the ones with the little red dots on them, until even they yielded to her palm like uncooked dough balls. Before long, if Jane was to grip an iron banister, even without thinking about it, she left her fingerprints embossed upon it, and it was with this grip that she clamped the wrist of our assassin. Shocked by her strength, he turned from the queen, grasped Jane round the throat, and now drove the dagger towards her head. And what of me? I confess the shock of the initial attack made me fear for my life. It began to flash before my eyes. My childhood in Indonesia, my move to America, slowly working my way to become editor of the Harvard Law Review, and then my election as senator for Illinois. It was at that point that I realised the life flashing before my eyes was not my own, but Barack Obama's. I snapped to my senses and leapt to Jane's aid. I beat upon the beast's head and back. It was as if my blows were the tickling of a fly. He knocked me aside with a blow harder than any I have felt since the time I accidentally wandered in between Katie Price and a television camera. I seek for a weapon. My eyes are caught by the flickering flames of the incense bowl, and I race to it and take the only material that there is to hand, sheet music for a lute version of Lionel Richie's Hello, that I brought as a gift for Jane, and I thrust it into the fire. Turning, I stab the torch at the beast's face. For the first time he responds, recoiling back. I thrust the brand again and again and again at the monster, driving it back, 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 until, with a final anguished cry, it turns and flees. All around is chaos. I turn to find Jane. My friends, I have sometimes been accused of insensitivity, and it is true that I once tried to seduce a widow at her husband's funeral. In fairness, it had been a long illness. We won't go there. But even I can see it is not the time to press my suit of love with Jane, who stands stunned before me. The evening ends with royal guards escorting the Queen home, and with me escorting Jane away from the chaos. Forgive me, my friends. Even at this length of time the memory of that foul beast, together with the tremendous heat in this recording studio, oh, I don't think I've sweat so much since the time that President Trump asked me to take over as Attorney General. Well, this time, my friends, unlike in Hong Kong, Having saved the life of royalty, I found myself invited 
to receive thanks at a private tea at Buckingham Palace. A footman led me through the sumptuous hallways. Portraits of sovereigns and statesmen lined the walls. Yet, as I strode deeper into the palace, the decoration underwent a subtle change. Here the shattered remnants of a defeated enemy's bones, now plated in silver. There the stuffed and mounted head of a Frenchman, everywhere cruel weapons of war. It was clear I had entered the private apartments of the Duke of Edinburgh. But I meet there not the Queen or the Duke of Edinburgh, but the slight and elegant figure of Dame Eileen Atkins, and she would go on to reveal the terrible threat that faced our nation. Now, that was the story, and I think I may have mentioned this before, that was the story which my mother could not believe didn't have some element of truth underlying it. And look, I'm not saying that that explains in and of itself the fact that we have got ourselves into such a pickle because people cannot help believing plausible and fluent rhetoricians, but I'm not saying not that either. The engineering on that and the other voice on that, Kasha Engler, uh, it really has proven an inspiration to Tall Tales' production unit and I think it is the Brandreth papers that have inspired the periodic slight improvements on that front. For our last song of the week, we're going to do uh, the breakaway pop hit from Diary of a Nobody, which was the show Susanna Pierce wrote with John Finnamore for The Mighty Finn. And the lead singer in this song is Anna Ferguson playing the part of Mr. Pooter's uh, son, Lupin. Anna pioneered the important Mighty Finn role of person for whom uh, a load of stuff is written, because as well as being able to act, they can really, really sing. Underground is the latest modern craze. 
comes away in such a simple dust-a-loo. Silver gets your woes, come and press your toes as you do the Bakerloo. Ha! <laughs> well, uh, Lupin, that's all very well, but it doesn't explain why you're here. So I lost my job. I'm sorry. What? I'll find another job. Don't worry. Lupin! How hard is it really? And I would work part-time, ideally. You could work for Mr. Perker. Carrie! Uh, should we not perhaps ask Mr. Perker? <laughs> not a splendid plan, dear. You're quite right, he's just the man, dear. When we go to work, Papa, now how is it we'll go? I usually take the omnibus. So. There's a better way, I know. Come on, everybody. There's a dancer doing bacon song. What's it called? Glad you asked. It's called the bacon and pop. I'm Okay, that is us done for this week. Thank you very much for being with us. We've had a lovely time. Also, thank you very much for, uh, in your numbers, replying to us about the live event, which we will do on Zoom on the 26th of May. It's extremely helpful to us to know how many people are going to be there so we can deal with the technolo technological demands, easy for you to say, uh, make sure that there's capacity and so on. The uh, email address to tell us that you're going to be there is talltalesnight at gmail.com and if you email us we will send you the, uh, the meeting details. Also, by the way, uh, as we have said many times, we're doing this for fun and joy and we know everyone's having a different lockdown experience. We're not expecting anything in return. It's, uh, it's just extremely nice to be doing it. On the other hand, we're extremely grateful to those of you who have actually sent us something to the link we sent up, to the link we set up, uh, so that we can you know, defer some of the, as I say, technology costs, uh, the hosting and so on. So anyway, thank you. That's all I'm saying. Have a great weekend. Be good and well and good to each other. Tall tales out. <laughs>